all God's people said, Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21 this morning. John chapter 21. We are in the last chapter of this year-long journey learning about Jesus, meeting Jesus, so that we can trust Jesus with all of who we are and all that concerns us. And John finishes this gospel that he's written about his best friend here on earth, Jesus, by chronicling the miracles and the messages that Jesus preached. But he finishes his gospel in a way that none of the other gospel writers finish it with. For Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they would finish their gospels with the ascension and the giving of the Great Commission to go and make disciples in all lands and places. But John focuses in on a fishing expedition and the restoration of Peter. Now we know that John wrote this gospel about 30 years after the other gospel writers. And I think John knows that there are some loose ends or some dots that need to be uh, connected. You see, the last we hear of John's friend Peter is John 18. Peter will have denied Jesus three times. We find Peter in deep despair and distress. And nothing more is said of him after John 18 until you get to John 21. Had John just talked about the Great Commission and talked about the Ascension, we would have been really wondering some things when we got to Acts chapter 1 when we see Peter take an area of leadership within the early church and then preach a message of a lifetime where 3,000 people were added to the church and the church was launched. We would wonder what happened that Peter would be used by God in such awesome ways throughout the book of Acts. And then we would wonder, how could a man who failed so miserably write two letters to the church, first and second Peter, how did we get from the place of such distress and despair in Peter's life to a place of great dedication? We need John 21 to connect those dots, to tie up those loose ends. But even more than that, I think John 21 is a gift and a grace to all of us. Because who among us hasn't failed? Who among us hasn't said big boasts about our relationship with Jesus only to fall to sin? Who amongst us hasn't felt a bit unworthy to serve and to dedicate one's life to Christ because of the issues and struggles that we have. You see, John 21 is such a fitting place for John to end his gospel. Because what it does in a nutshell is reminds us that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And that though we are failures and though we are sinners, that Jesus came that we may have life and have it in all abundance. And so in John 21, John wants to declare to us today, in your sin and in your shame, you need to know when you trust Jesus, He can shut down your shame once and for all. And that's what I want to focus in our time and attention to this morning. For some of us, because of our sin and the shame that comes as a result of that sin, we are debilitated in our ability to serve and honor Christ. And that's not what Jesus wants for us. He didn't want that for Peter. He didn't want that for his disciples. And he doesn't want that for us today. And so this morning, I want to tell you how Jesus deals with our shame and the sin that comes with it. 
And so this morning, let's look at three things. First of all, we need to understand when speaking of shame, shame comes as a result of our failures. Shame comes as a result of our failures. When we last looked at the life of Peter, we were in John 18. I entitled that message, Epic Fail. And at the, at the end of that, that week after the message, uh, an individual came up to me and he said, Boy, I needed that. I had an epic fail in my life. To which I responded to him, You're not the only one. We are all epic failures. You see, the Bible makes it clear, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen to me very, very carefully this morning. You have failed God. You have failed God and so have I. Every man, woman, and child outside of Jesus Christ has failed to live up to the glory of the perfect God in heaven. And because of that, no matter how clean we look, no matter how good of a game we talk, all of us have had epic failures in our lives. And as a result of those epic failures of falling short of God's glory, we find ourselves living in this emotion. This emotion called shame. Shame has been defined as the following. It has been defined as the painful feeling of failure. It is the feeling you have when you have failed. You feel shame when you strike out in a baseball game. You feel shame when the girl you ask out says no. You feel shame for a variety of things at work and at play. When there's a moment of failure, shame is right on its heels. And it's this feeling that arises from our consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, or ridiculous that is done by ourselves or done by someone close to us. We can have family shame. Parents can have shame because of what their kids have done. Kids can have shame for what their parents have done. Shame is part and parcel to the human condition. And the reason why is we have all failed. Now, what the devil and the world will tell us is if you have failed, there's no hope for you. There's no future for you. In fact, there have been a great many people who have been told, even though they would go on to live great lives, that they were abject failures. And the shame that would come with it. Upon watching the first game of Vince Lombardi's football career, a mentor coach said the following, Vince possesses minimal football knowledge, he lacks motivation, and he probably will never win a game as a coach. The sad thing was, is Vince heard that in the press. Second, Beethoven. Beethoven's teacher said he handles the violin awkwardly. He prefers to play his own odd compositions instead of improving his technique. Beethoven's teacher called him a hopeless musician who will never, ever become a composer. How about Walt Disney? Walt Disney would be fired from three jobs as a newspaper editor for a lack of creativity and ideas. He would be bankrupt several times and it wouldn't be till later in his life after a set of failures that he would build the great Disney empire. How about Thomas Edison? Thomas Edison, his high school teacher, wrote this on his report card very succinctly. 
He's too stupid to do anything. (laughs) Albert Einstein was a failure over and over again. His parents thought he would account be account to nothing in, in adulthood. Why? He didn't speak until he was eight. He didn't read until he was ten. His teachers described him uh, as mentally slow, unsociable, adrift, forever in his foolish and childish dreams. He would be expelled from high school and refuse admittance into the university. All of us, no matter who we are, have felt the sting a failing, and the shame that comes from it. And a lot of us think that because of that, we're defined by that. I grew up in this church. And if you were to ask the very uh, congregation back in the day as I was going through junior high and high school, name the one person you don't think will grow up to be the pastor, it would have been a 100% vote and it would have been me. There were some hard things that were said. I'm sure in love, and I'm sure I drove people to say some difficult things, and I I pushed the limits of people. I was thrown out of my 8th grade Sunday school class. The teacher took me by the nap of the neck. He was a type A personality guy, of which a Kool-Aid drinking, ADD-wearing kid drove him berserk took me out of class, dragging me to take me to the class that my dad was teaching, an adult Sunday school class in the foyer right outside of these doors. Talk about history. As he's walking me down the stairs from the old building, he said, uh, what are you going to do with yourself? And I told the sir, I said, sir, you watch. One day I'm going to be a pastor. I had no intention of being a pastor. I just knew that was going to get his goat. Of which the man so aptly said, listen to me, Tim, the only place you'll ever be a preacher is the Joliet State Penitentiary. Okay? We've all been there, right? And sadly, there's a lot of people who will tell us that we're good for nothing. They'll tell us that our history defines us. If there was anybody who had a moment in time that should have defined their future, it was Peter. Peter had failed miserably. He had talked a great game. He had said that everybody else would leave Jesus, but not Peter. Peter loved Jesus more than anyone else, and he made sure everybody knew that. But then, on the day of Jesus' arrest, during that fateful night, Peter would deny Jesus not once, twice, but three times. He would do the very thing he said he wasn't going to do. When Jesus, humanly speaking, needed him the most, Peter failed him. The text tells us that in that failure, he wept bitterly when the rooster crowed. He knew he had failed. He knew he had blown it. For some of us, we remember that moment where we blew it. We said something. We did something. We knew it was wrong. And the moment it was done, we knew that life would never be the same again. We knew that that moment would haunt us the rest of our lives. That's where Peter's at in John 18. Peter knows his life is over. He knows whatever was planned for him was done. 
if there was anybody who might have been, and I want to be careful how I say this, might have found some consolation in the death of Jesus, it may have been Peter. Because he knew that he would never have to see Jesus again. He wouldn't have to see Him face As much as He loved Him, that, that shame and that remorse and that regret would be able to stay there and it would never have to be brought back. But here's the problem. Jesus was raised from the grave. And I wonder if part of Peter, even out of joy, like Jesus did what He said He was going to do, there was a part of Him that was like, but that means now i got to look Him in the eye. Now i got to talk to Him. And some of us, our relationship with Jesus is so uh, skewed and broken right now. And it's not because of something Jesus has done. He did exactly what He said He was going to do. But now we've got to look at Jesus. Now we've got to talk with Jesus. Now we've got to uh, have a relationship with Jesus. And we believe our sin has separated us once and for all from any kind of relationship and ongoing ministry that Jesus would have. You see, shame brings friends with it. Shame loves to throw a party and it invites alienation, inadequacy, helplessness, powerlessness, defensiveness, weakness, insecurity, uncertainty, unworthiness, hurts, intimidation, defeat, and rejection. You see, that's what we're dealing with. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have shame. And what Jesus wants us to know is, trust me, believe in me, and I'll take that shame away. And I'll give you purpose and I'll give you an identity that that failure will never define you again. But here's the problem we see in the story. Before that can happen, we find out shame has a way of impacting our lives more than we know. I want you to see three ways that shame and, and failure impacted Peter. Number one, it would impact the choices he made. Write that down. It would impact the choices he made. It would impact how he would lead his companions that were around him. And number three, it would lead to a new set of consequences. So here's Peter. John 18, Peter has blown it. The rooster has crowed. Peter is ready just to sunset. It's over. But then Jesus is resurrected from the grave. Peter has not just seen him once, not twice, but now it is a third time he's going to see Jesus. And the text goes like this. After this, that is the uh, second appearance of Jesus, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the two sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to him, said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Let's stop there. I want you to notice what Peter's doing. It says that Peter's going fishing. Why? After visiting and seeing the risen Savior, would Peter go fishing? Commentaries agree that what Peter is doing is he is making his exit from his role as a disciple. What Peter's got going on in his mind is, I have failed so miserably that any opportunity of me being a pastor, a missionary, or a follower of Jesus Christ is gone. That went out the door when I denied Jesus those three times. And so what Peter is saying is, is I'm going to go back to what I did 
before I knew Christ. Because I'm of no use to Christ anymore, I'll go fill my time with an occupation, with a hobby, with a thing that doesn't have any spiritual value to it, if you will, altogether. This is Peter's thinking. For many of you know, I serve bivocationally. This would be like me losing my ministry because of some epic fail in my life. And my words to the congregation as I leave this place is, I'm going back to catering. Because that's the only thing I know what to do. And even though I've screwed this ministry up, I can't screw up pork chops and chicken. I got that down. And so he's exiting, and he's exiting because of shame and because of his sin. Some of you have walked away from the Lord, not because the Lord has walked away from you, but because your shame has you thinking that there's no place for you in the church, no place for you in the family of God, and so you have filled your life with everything else, and the devil has got you right where he wants you. But notice, it impacts the companions around Peter. Peter says, I'm going fishing. The others say to him, we'll go with you. Here's the problem. Peter, when he was faithful, was a leader. And when Peter was faithless, he was a leader. I want you to know today, church, when you're faithful, you're a leader. And when you're faithless, you're a leader. There are eyes watching. There are ears listening. There are people following you in your steps. And what Peter should have been doing is preaching Christ and proclaiming restoration and reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins. But no, he is uh, just wallowing in his sadness and his guilt. And by lesser effect, some of these other disciples have that as well. All but John had deserted Jesus, had walked away. And so they follow their leader and some in this place today have people following them not to good places. Instead of being the model of reconciliation and restoration, you're a model of what it means to spiritually retreat. Be careful. People are watching. You shouldn't be surprised when they follow in your footsteps. So they take off. And notice what they do. They get in a boat and they go fishing. Now, of the ones that are listed, four of them have fishing in their background. They're professional fishermen. And they go fishing, and this is a time where we hear what the consequence of trying to do life apart from Jesus would get you. They caught nothing. That's an important Greek word there, nothing. It means zilch, nada, nothing. Okay? So here's Peter and his disciples. They're running away from Jesus. They know they have failed Jesus. They know they're good for nothing spiritually. And now they're finding out we can't even fish anymore. This is how pathetic we are. There's nothing we can do. Isn't that what shame does for so many of us? Shame makes us think there's nothing of value to us. There's no good. We've got nothing. Whatever we did in the past defines us. And so now our life is filled with futility. Here they are, fishing all night and nothing. And here's the crazy thing about fishing. It's not like it happened in a couple minutes. They didn't catch anything all night long. Sitting in that boat, casting out that net, 
pulling it in, nothing. Cast it out, pulling it in, nothing. They were at a place of epic fail and shame. And so in that moment, they need something. In this moment, in this church, i got to believe there are some who are living in places of shame and failure, and you need something. Because you're going through this life and there's nothing. Not a zilch. And the only thing you can go back to is the reason why you are so fruitless in your work is because of that situation, that moment, that thing you said, that thing you did, that thing you wish you could get in a time machine and go back and relive so you could do it all over again and you keep going back to it and back to it and you got the devil who's accusing you, no, of course you're no good for nothing. How could a child of God do such a thing? How could you say you're a Christian and let those words come out of your mouth? How could you say you're a follower of Christ and involve yourself in such activity? and you feel absolutely worthless. That's John 21, verse 3. They're feeling it. And they're sitting in that boat and they're dying. And it's in this moment that I want you to know at that place, Jesus has an answer for them and He has an answer for us. Amen? Because shame is removed through the words and I would add the actions of a faithful friend. Jesus shows up in the place of greatest sorrow and pain. It says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. And yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were unable to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. And he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the full net of fish. For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place which fish, with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Let's stop there. Listen, church, in our place of greatest sorrow and shame, Jesus comes looking for us. Notice three things. Write this down. Jesus restores Peter first by finding him, then by feeding him, and then by freeing him. So start with the finding. Peter doesn't want to be found. Peter's gone fishing. Peter doesn't want to be near Jesus. Peter hasn't even done what the prodigal son does, and that is, it comes to the prodigal son's mind when he's in a far-off land and he's squandered all of his riches and all of his wealth. He says, maybe I'll go back to my father. It would be better to be a slave in my father's house than to try to live life on my own. Peter's not even there yet. Peter is trying to create more distance from himself and Jesus. He's running from God, and Jesus comes running after him. 
Now notice, when Jesus finds Peter, by the way, Jesus always knew where Peter was at. It wasn't like this hide-and-seek game. But when Jesus finds Peter, notice Jesus' response. If I was Jesus, let me tell you how I would have responded. Hey, Peter, you deserter, you denier. You said you smoked such a good game, you'll never leave everybody. You remember that, Peter? Oh, all these may fall away, but not I, not Peter. Remember that, Peter? What a joke. Not once. Not twice. But remember that third one, that little girl with the pigtails? I mean, she was like 55 pounds. She's a little thing. You couldn't even say that you were a follower of mine to that little thing. What is wrong with you? How many of us respond to our friends and those around us when they're in a place of guilt? But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus calls out to them. And he hears that they are futile in their attempts. And he miraculously gives them words that will be a blessing to them. Stop doing it this way and do it that way. Some of us are living in our shame because we are unwilling to listen to Jesus and stop doing it our way and start listening and doing it his way. And Jesus says, out of love and compassion, listen, this ain't working for you. So let's go this way. Trust me. Believe in me. And it'll work. They do that. And they pull this great uh, load of fish out. And then the text says that when they came to land, Jesus says, bring some of the fish. And there was this fire there. And Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Jesus finds them. And now he feeds them. Don't miss this. In the Middle Eastern culture, that is an invitation to intimacy. Americans will eat with anybody. In the Middle Eastern culture, if there's a rift, even within a house, the table's not set. I want you to know you are already reconciled to Jesus because of the finished work on the cross. And so what he's doing is inviting. All you have to do is come. If you notice in the Scriptures over and over again, God is seen as this individual who has set forth this incredible meal and invites anyone and everyone who will come to the party. So here's Jesus. He has set the table and he invites Peter. He says, Peter, I want you to eat. I want you to eat. Notice what Jesus does. And this is so important. We read right through this and we miss this. So John is setting this up. And of course, Jesus, by his sovereignty, has set this up. Notice what the text says. It says that all of this transpires as day was breaking in verse 4. As day was breaking, the sun was rising. Let's rewind back to John chapter 18. After the third denial of Jesus by Peter, what happens? Help me out, group. Rooster crows. Farmers, when does the rooster crow? Afternoon. You're absolutely right. No, early in the morning, right? 
early in the morning, as day is breaking. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's moving Peter to the time stamp. And then notice, Jesus has gone and gotten a bag of Kingsford charcoal, got it lit on the on the seashore. The smoke and the smell of charcoal is is cooking. We love that smell, right? I make a living off of that smell. But that smell takes Peter somewhere. If you read back to John 18, in his second denial, Peter denies Jesus to a group of men who are huddled around a fire. Jesus is bringing Peter back to that time and that place. And Peter, it's not hard for him to get there. For some of us, and your epic fails, if you're like me, you remember that moment. You remember what you were thinking. You remember what you're doing. You remember what you're wearing. You remember what the smells were going on around you. You are cognizant of everything because you have forever since that point wanted to go back and change that moment. Peter's like, it's daybreak. There's the smell of fire. And there's Jesus again at a distance. So Jesus has set him up. He wants to feed him. So there's this dialogue that happens. Notice there's other people in the space. Okay? But the dialogue is all between Jesus and Peter. And here's what Jesus wants Peter to know. There's restoration in me. There's reconciliation because of me. And in a room this big, you are hearing the voice of Jesus not speak to everyone collectively, but to each of us individually. And He's saying, whatever your sin, whatever your struggle, wherever you've blown it, there is forgiveness, there is freedom. And so notice what He begins to do. He begins to ask Peter some questions. Notice he asked the questions three times. Hint, hint, hint. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. Three times Jesus says, Do you love me? Now notice, he says, Do you love me more than these? What are the these? What is he he saying there? Do you love me more than these? In verse 15. Is it the boat? Is it the net? Is it the fish? Meaning, do you love me more than being a fisherman? Does he mean, do you love me more than these? And he's talking about the other disciples. Most commentaries believe that it's the disciples. Why? Because Peter had said he loved Jesus more than them. They would all fall away, Peter would say, but not me. And so Jesus is saying, if you do... You don't have to live in that place anymore, but your shame and sin can be reversed. Write this down. Your shame and sin can be reversed through an obedient future. So how's Peter going to be restored? Jesus says it begins with a life of service. Do you love me more than these? Peter says, yes, you know I love you. Jesus said to Peter, feed my lambs. A second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he had said it to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. How do we get beyond a place of shame and sin? We stop living in the past and we start serving the Lord in the present. This feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my lambs. What is he saying? In a nutshell, Jesus is saying, you're going to involve yourself in ministry to all types of people at all types of ages, all types of backgrounds, all types of smells and issues and struggles. You're going to minister to them all. The way we reverse our sin and our shame is we dedicate our lives to a life of service serving the epic failures around us. Helping them, guiding them, leading them, gracing them. But it involves more. Listen, this service is more than simply a service that we do of any other. It's the supreme or primary service we do. That's why Jesus three times, and it's, you're not going to see it in your English translation, but, but you'll see it in the original language. When Jesus says, do you love me? Peter responds, yes, I love you. And it doesn't make any sense in our English. The problem is we don't have another word for love to use. You see, in the Greek language, they had multiple words for love. And this is what Jesus says. Peter, do you agape me? A supernatural, sacrificial love. Peter responds, you know I phileo, brotherly love, a social love. I love you like a brother. Jesus says again, do you agape me, Peter? Peter says, you know I phileo you, Jesus. You see, when we talk about a life of service, what Jesus is saying is our sin and shame is reversed when we make Jesus the primary thing in our world. And that that relationship is number one. First and foremost in our lives. But what that's going to mean is it's going to mean we need to surrender things. There's this life of service that Peter's going to live and this life of surrender. For the rest of the chapter, Jesus says some pretty cryptic things. He says you're going to... Uh, not be able to dress yourself. You're not going to be able to walk where you want to walk. And when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. This was to show the kind of death he was going to die in order to glorify God. And after that, he said to him, follow me. What Peter is being told is, listen, you're going to be a prisoner for my sake. People are going to drag you around and do what they want with you. And they're at one point going to stretch your arms out and you're going to die on a cross. And Peter would die on a cross some decades later. Seeing it unfitting to die as Jesus did, church history tells us he was crucified upside down. And it's because he gave his life up. And so here is this man. What do we know about Peter? Peter is one of the greatest men to ever live he was one of the greatest men to ever serve our Lord. He's a model of faithfulness and humility. Why? Because his past doesn't define him anymore. But because of his service and his surrender to his king, Jesus took his shame and reversed it that he would never, listen to me church, never be defined by it again. 
And if you are being defined by a sin, defined by a moment in time, give your life, dedicate your life to your Lord and Savior and watch Him change the narrative that people will forget the failure and only remember your faithfulness. Listen to me. That has been my calling. Because as an 18, 19-year-old kid, I had far too many people tell me, you've blown it too many times. Your rap sheet is too big. You've got too many issues and struggles. Your mouth gets the best of you. And I finally got so sick and tired of the devil and other people beating me up over it. I dedicated my life to Jesus. And I said, Jesus, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. If I'm going to be a fool for anybody, I'll be a fool for you. And I will tell you this. He has taken away my failures. And by His grace and mercy, He has used me to bring Him glory. And for that, I will be eternally thankful. And so join me in that journey with Peter and watch once and for all your shame shut down forever. Give your shame. Give your sin to Jesus as Peter did and watch Jesus change it all. You'll never be the same and you'll never be happier. Amen?